And so it's good to be back with you uh, today. And um, I have an 11-year-old girl. She's getting to be very tall now. And, and her and my 8-year-old son were out in the front yard one day, and they were lying on their backs. And you got to understand, there's rarely a case when we see any kind of peace and serenity between those two. So it's kind of unusual at the time. But they were lying on their backs, and they were staring into the sky. And all of a sudden, a white cloud popped over them. And, and Caitlin said, you know, Micah, that cloud looks like a pig. And Micah goes, no, it don't. It looks like a football. And so Caitlin quickly rebuttaled because she's always got to have the last word. And she goes, no, that cloud looks like a teapot. And so Micah said, started laughing. I don't know where you're coming from, but that cloud looks like a squirrel. About that time, our three-year-old Micah was wondering what was going on. And so he kind of went over there and started staring at a little bit and listening to their argument. And then he looks up into the sky and he goes, that looks like a cloud. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how our perspective is, you know, what, what kind of formulates or kind of starts uh, implementing our, our perspective. It could be that our personalities kind of formulate our, our perspectives, whether you're a phlegmatic or a cleric or or melancholy. I say that word, melancholy. It's a tongue twister. Those kinds of things starts um, formulating your perspective. Maybe it's your life experience, your upbringing, how you grew up. It kind of, kind of becomes your lens that you view life with, and it kind of starts to formulate your worldview. But even though we can have four people in one room and look at something differently at four different directions and and have four different opinions on it, one thing as a body of Christ, as believers, one thing that we do have to have in common, and that is an eternal perspective. Meaning that if we're growing in the knowledge of grace, as Paul says, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, says anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. And then he goes on to say in Romans 12.2 that because we're becoming new, that we're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if that's the case, then we start looking at life just a little bit different, more and more as we grow cl- closer to, to Christ. And so we have to come together as a faith family to remind each other about that. Because why? Because there's so many distractions that we have in this world that wants to turn our attention and our affection and our passions towards. But when it's supposed to be solely on Christ, then he directs our paths and our steps. And so today I want us to look at a topic of this broad topic of life and how we are to, as a church, to have the eternal perspective and to be challenged by the, the, the turn back if we've turned away from our perspective of, of having eternal perspective. But, but just be reminded that, that God desires us to be used and, and to, be, to, to live out his plan. And, and so today I want to look at that topic and, and through the eyes of a, a person who wrote Ecclesiastes and his name is Solomon. If you was to look at Solomon's life, you will see that the, he was a... The wisest man on earth, that the Bible says, and and I don't, you know, that's I think that's debatable because he had seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines. You know, what I mean, can you get that? Like that's that's kind of crazy, isn't it? But yet he was known. He's notorious for his contribution to the na- nation of Israel. He was extremely popular. It was people jockeying in on their camels from miles and miles around just to hear him speak. He was extremely wealthy, and so he had. All these things, and as he reached the height or the pinnacle of human achievements, he starts off in the book of Ecclesiastes with a sad 
sad verse. Let's look at that in Ecclesiastes 1. 1. He says, The words of the teacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, if you read that, if you're like me, your initial response is to go jump off a high bridge with low water, right? I mean, if we're looking at life, the topic of life, and all of a sudden he says meaningless, or if your version may say vanity, vanity, it sounds like if this was a song, it would be a country song, wouldn't it? I mean, his camel stuck in the back 40. His dog jumped off the pinnacle of the temple. I don't know. Maybe his old lady wouldn't bring him a bowl of ice cream, or in his case, old ladies. But it's, it's a sad, sad song, and he op- opens this book with the term meaningless, and he's looking on life, and, and a lot of scholars agree that, that when Solomon wrote this book that he was looking back in retrospect and looking at what all he accomplished or what all he's done, or, or maybe he's older in age and he's kind of in that stage of reflection, and he's looking at it and he's saying, all this is meaningless. Now, granted, I think we can all conclude that out of all of his accomplishments and all of all he's done, that, that the reason why he comes to the point where he thinks life is meaningless because he lost his eternal perspective. At one time, he had it. Matter of fact, the, the scripture says in 1 Kings 3 that God came to him and asked him for anything, for anything. And Solomon wanted wisdom and so that he can rule and judge rightly and do the will of God. I mean, he was, he was responsible for the greatest worship service there ever was. He, he finished building the temple. He had these great worship services, and he's done great things for God. But somewhere in the line, the Bible teaches that women... Foreign women turned his attention to, to idols, to foreign gods. And before we get too critical of Solomon, I think if we're honest with ourselves, there are times that we, our attention, gets turned off of God and on the things that are not eternal, but that go or end at our grave. And so I want us to look at this life, or this, this topic of life this morning in Ecclesiastes 3, 11 through 17. He says this. He says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Let me stop right there. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, they were created to live forever. It is when that Adam and Eve turned their attention away from God and put it on uh, the other thing, the, the, the fruit, as we say, that's when original sin happened. And from then on, from that time on, there has been a search. There has been a longing. He has set eternity in our hearts. That's why everybody has this void, this emptiness, this vacuum that can only be filled with a relationship with God. That's why any, people look to anything and everything to fill that void. And so he says that no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. To each of them may eat and drink and, be, and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. He's a, he is in control. He's sovereign. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. God does it so that people will fear him. What, whatever is, has already been, and whatever will be, has been before. And God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. 
In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. But there will be a time for everything, activity, a time to judge every deed. So I want to look at, take us a look at this, this topic of eternal perspective. And I want us to remind us as believers that the first thing, if we're going to have an eternal perspective, it's going to cause an external response. Because why? It's because your theology, what you believe about God and your faith will formulate or form your perspective. Maybe it's your philosophy and your philosophy or your perspective is going to mold your or modify your behavior and how you act. Did you get that? So our philosophy, our theology is going to form our perspective and our perspective is going to formulate our on how we act. So an eternal perspective will demand an eternal, an external, excuse me, response. And so the first thing is this, is that eternal perspective anticipates. What do we anticipate as believers? Well, we participate that one day that we're going to stand face to face with, with Christ to be held accountable for what, he, what we have done here on this earth. In Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. But here's the thing we need to understand. In John 5.24, it says this. It says, Verily or truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes them who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So here's the thing we need to understand about that passage. We think sometimes that, that our eternal life starts at the moment that we kick the bucket, right? But the reality of it is, if we put our faith and trust in Christ, our eternal life starts at that moment. So everything we do at that moment from here on out to the end of this earth has eternal implications. It has impact. And so we'll be held accountable for that. Now, granted, it's not that we just like anticipate the, you know, the, the judgment or whatever. The judgment, I think it's going to be a great thing because God's going to look and say everything that we've done in him is going to be weighed out. And it's going to have eternal, it's going to carry out, it's going to have a ripple effect. Why do you think, think the judgment is going to happen at the very end? It's because what we do here on earth carries out from generations to generations, from eternity to eternity. Let me give you this illustration. Why do you think we're sitting here in First Baptist today talking about the things of God and worshiping? It's because the ministry of Paul. And so Paul is going to get some reward or, or, or have some, you know, see his fruit come in fruition and seeing that, that centuries later that we're here as believers in Christ. And so, so we need to understand that. And I feel that Solomon at this point may have been looking back and he was a little remorseful because after reading the book of Ecclesiastes, one concluded that he lost his, his eternal perspective. But, it's, but we can't be so judgmental because it's easy to take our eyes off to the fact that one day that we will have an encounter with Christ and he will judge everything that we've done here on earth. Colossians 3.2 says, Paul says, set your mind on things above and not on here on this earth. And 1 Corinthians 3 says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire, and with fire will test the quality of each person's work. So we anticipate that. Let me give you this illustration. 
when Melissa leaves to go on an errand, and she says, I want, to have those, I want you to have those dishes done by the time I get home, you better believe I'm going to anticipate her arrival. I'm going to make sure that those dishes are done. By the time she gets home, she's raising her eyebrows. There, are you? Yeah. It's so funny, the other night we have a neighbor... Um, I live uh, now in Bogachitta, Mississippi. Spell that one. <laughs> we live in the country out on a, a dead-end road. we got some awesome neighbors. And, and, um, and so one of my neighbors, his way of, of you know, stopping by and saying hey is pulling up in the driveway and honking the horn. And, um, and so it's, it's just funny. His whole family does it. His wife did it another, a couple weeks ago, and she had a pound cake. I'm glad I went out there. And so anyway, she, I was doing dishes. I was sitting in the, uh, in the kitchen and... And it was getting late, and I was doing the dishes. And he all of a sudden, he pulls up, and he honks the horn. And Melissa's like, hey, there's somebody outside um, honking the horn. And I said, it's probably Mr. Steve. He always does that. So I went outside to see what it is. He said, hey, come get in the car. He said, what are you doing right now? I said, well, I'm doing dishes. He said, grab your guitar and come on. He's a musician. And he said, let's go play some music. And so I went in there and was like, hey, Melissa, can I go play some music, you know? <laughs> and she goes, you had that plan, didn't you? So, but anyway, if, if I know she's coming home, you better best be Better bet your bottom nickel that I'm going to have those dishes done by the time she gets home. So we anticipate the coming of Christ. If we believe that we're going to be held accountable, then our response is to be about the will of God and not invest in everything that's so temporal, but yet invest into the eternal. Matter of fact, Jesus illustrates this in Matthew 25 when he talks about the the parable of the bride and groom and for us to be as the groom or excuse me as the bride to be ready for his appearing he goes on to say about the parable of talents that he gives us abilities opportunities and for us to be diligent with those things and that those will have eternal implications and um and so he illustrates those himself and so if we're going to be about the will of god which brings me to point number two is that this an eternal perspective pursues if we know that we're going to be held accountable, our response should be a hot pursuit of the things of God. Meaning that the things that God cares about should be our cares as well. Well, what do you mean? What do we pursue? Is Maybe we pursue the purpose and the plan that God has us as individuals. And that's the cool thing about the Christian faith that, that God made us so unique and everything else that we can go to him and he can reveal things about ourselves and, and, and give us opportunities to carry out his redemptive plan. That's one cool thing about the church, that God uses us to carry out the redemptive plan. Think about that. He could have done it any other way. He's God. But yet he chooses to use us. So it's our responsibility to go to him and ask him to reveal Things about ourself, our, what our passions are, what of our giftings are. I used to tell college students, I said, there no, there's nobody that knows you better than your mom. Except God, right? He created you. So who do we go to to learn things about ourselves? And that is our creator, our father. And so we search for what he has, a specific will for our lives. And as our relationship deepens, we will ultimately view our world and life as as. God sees it. In Ephesians five, fifteen through 17, Paul says this, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil, the days are numbered. And therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And here's the thing, guys. 
is that when we are, have our eyes upon God and we experience his grace and his glory and his goodness, then he has a unique way of turning our eyes upon others. And we start, when we get involved in God's economy, we start seeing how he sees other people. And we start viewing through the lens of his eyes and not necessarily our own. And so what do we pursue? In, in that fashion, we pursue evangelism. Somebody, somebody's eternity starts becoming our, our, our care. We start caring about somebody's eternity. One of the most saddening things about here, what happened recently in Las Vegas with the shooting, is that, and, and I, I mean, it's bad enough as it is, but to think about, I wonder how many people wasn't ready to meet their maker. That's a saddening thought, or it's very humbling, to say the least. So we start pursuing discipleship. We start pouring into our, our, our as parents, we start pouring into our children. As, as people in the church, we start pouring into other people because we know it has a, a ripple effect. And we understand our giftings, and we get plugged into the local church and use them to benefit or to uh, amplify the gospel or, or to continue to carry out the kingdom of God. We start pouring um, into our, our leadership, or we start pursuing leadership in our homes and in our communities because we know it has eternal impact. That's eternal perspective. Your life becomes less about yourself and more focused on others. That is the sign of a mature Christian. Don't you know that? Is when your life starts reflecting more about other people instead of yourself, then that's the sign of a mature Christian. He, he exemplified it, or, or Jesus exemplified it, as Paul said in Philippians 2, that, that he humbled himself to the point of, point of death on the cross. It's humility. So we start pursuing the things of God. We start seeing how he sees things. And, and, and as a church, we, we get engaged. We start pursuing how we can get involved in our communities. If y'all, met, if y'all ever met people before that, that are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, have you ever met those people? It becomes, it, it becomes us and them, and, and they kind of stick to themselves, and they become, I call them survival groups. You know, they don't engage into the community. They don't know how to, to engage in evangelism or discipleship. They just point the finger and judgmental saying, you know, God's going to get them. God's going to get them. And they become no, you know, no earthly good whatsoever. You know, I think God, when we start taking our eyes off of God, that's easy to get into that. I do believe that. Because why? If the finger's not point, if the finger's pointed at other people, then what? It, it becomes less about us and our coming to Christ. And so, I love what Second Timothy says that, or excuse me, before I read that passage, um, I think we, if we have eternal perspective, we do a good job at learning how to merge our day-to-day life um, with our, our life with Christ. And what I mean by that is, so many times people want to divorce the secular and the sacred. Meaning, what we do here has nothing to do with what I do during the week. And that's far from the truth. Every day is worship. Everything we do is we do unto the Lord, right? And so we, as eternal, with eternal perspective, we know how to balance that. And in 2 uh, Timothy 2, 4, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, but you, or excuse me, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Now, granted, if you went out... Tomorrow and witnessed all day long up and down, whether it's Tex campus or, or Main Street, 
And sometime or another, you're going to stop and eat lunch, right? Because you're going to get hungry, right? You're going to have to go to Super One. You got to, I mean, the Holy Spirit gives us power, but we have to go pay our power bill, right? You know, we know how to engage and, 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 and be the person on an everyday basis that, that lives out our faith. We're not trying to divorce the two. But I love that word, that, that, the word entangled. That means that, that it doesn't paralyze us to the point. That means we hadn't got our attention so far off on the everyday life, perils of life or everyday duties of life, so much so that we're not about the eternity. Does that make sense? It doesn't paralyze us to the point where we're not engaged. So what does that mean? That we can live freely and God made you to be. That means that you can be a doctor with eternal perspective. It means you can be an engineer with eternal perspective. That means you can be a school teacher with eternal perspective. That means you can sell insurance with eternal perspective. I mean, I always encourage college students. You know, I mean, everybody in some form or fashion is called to do ministry. But I love to see people who are carrying out their occupation and seeing how God can use them in their career. I mean, you can even be a used car salesman and have eternal perspective. I know that's hard to believe, but even an LSU fan can have eternal perspective. <laughs> They've been on their knees a lot lately. So that's how, that's how it applies to us, that, that it doesn't, it's just not about the, the paid professional Christians, you know. It's about every one of us getting engaged in eternal work, eternal, having eternal perspective. Which brings me to the last point is this. Or let me, excuse me, before I go to point number three, I want to tell you about a story about a couple named Don and Sandra Tipton. Don and Sandra Tip- Tipton had a polo club in Beverly Hills. Now think about that. Riding around on a horse, knocking the little ball around. And so Sandra all of a sudden starts having this, this longing in her heart trying to search for God. And, and she was having these dreams and, and everything else. And she kept telling Don, she goes, I don't know if God exists. I want to find God. I want to see who he is. And, and, and so Don said, well, I could share with you what I've heard as a kid. He used to go to church with his mother when he was a, a child. But, and, um, and so he pretty much presented the gospel to her as he heard it as a kid, and she got saved. And all of a sudden, her life started to change, and, and he started seeing a change in, in her, and he wanted what he wanted, so he ended up giving his life to Christ. And so you got two polo club owners who, who own um, this polo club and, and hobnobbing with Paul Newbin and, and Sylvester Stallone and, and everybody else. And all of a sudden, they're starting to, their change starting to happen in their life. And they weren't even going to church at this time because the polo club had to be open on Sunday. But they started just reading the Bible together. And all of a sudden, they start to realize that there was something more than what they were doing in life. And so what they did was is that they sold the polo club and started using their, their money and their connections and everything that they had uh, accumulated together as a couple to invest in ships and helicopters and airplanes. And they started going to places over. They've been in Russia, um, Pakistan. They got a camp set up in the, in the Middle East right now um, feeding refugees. But they go over there and they feed these people and they share the gospel with them. Isn't that amazing? That's a cool story. It's because 
they developed an eternal perspective. So the last point is this, is that an eternal perspective perseveres. Would you agree with me that this world is dark? We've had some tragic events lately. And, and although we experience hardships, whether it's globally, locally, or personally, sin has tainted our world. So how do we continue with a positive attitude pursuing the will of God? It is through perseverance. And in our mind, our, you know, we have natural disasters. How do we rectify the natural disasters, our terrorist attacks, the monstrous dictatorships, the diseases, and on and on and on? And then how do we just make sense of it all? When James 2, 2 through 4, James was talking to the Hebrew church and they were starting to scatter across the land because there was extreme persecution and there was a good chance that that they may lose their lives over their faith. And, And during this time, he says this. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, that whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you will know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let the perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Let me, let, me, let me point out something about this passage. Why in the world would he tell them to invest in their character so much so if they were about to get, possibly give their life up for the faith? Because I believe that their character doesn't stop at their grave. I believe it carries on out through eternity. And so, consider it all joy. It's hard to say that, isn't it? When we're experiencing what we're experiencing as as believers, we're starting to see um, these epic events that are transpiring in our world, and we're looking at it, and they're saying, you know, consider it all joy. It's a note. His redemptive work have manifested itself through generations past and will continue to manifest itself itself through generations to come. What does that mean? That means he's got it under control. He sees the whole picture. You know, we're held captive by time. We can't see. We can only see bits and pieces of it. But yet we serve a God who sees the whole picture and he knows what's going to happen. He's sovereign in that. In Isaiah 53, 5, I love this passage. And this is what I want you to see is this. It says this. But when he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we're healed. Reason why I wanted to point out this passage for this point is because of this. Look at that. This was an Old Testament passage written about a New Testament event in past tense. Did you get that? An Old Testament passage was written about a New Testament event, written in past tense. He's got it under control. What he did on the cross was sufficient for throughout all time, even from, from years past and from all eternity. And so he's got it under control. My dad passed away at an early age and... and, uh, and before, not long before he passed away, I think it was like a week before... Um, I was sitting up in the bed with him. He was really frail, and and uh, we were sitting in the bed watching TV. I, we, I actually remember the show, it was Bonanza. I don't know some of you know know what Bonanza is. I told the first service they knew what it was, but the second service not so much. I bet y'all are gonna go home and YouTube it, aren't you? 
but he loved him some house caught right and uh, everything. And so we were sitting up in bed and, and, um, and I guess it was a commercial break or something like that. They had those back then too, before streaming. But he looked over at me and he said, Justin, don't drive your stakes too far here. And I hate to be morbid, but even Solomon was a little bit morbid in his book of Ecclesiastes because he said it is rather, it's rather that you go to a funeral than a party. Why? Because when you look at death, you learn about life and you're able to put it in perspective. But yet, we can look at those trials and those, and those times that we are tested and our faith is tested and we can say that it's accomplished or it is done, it's finished. And we can have victory in the promise that he gives us, that he's in control. You know, out of all honesty, like Solomon, I've been enticed by other things except the things of God. If we're all honest with ourselves, sometimes our circumstances become bigger than, than our God and our eyes have, have been taken off of him and put on other things. And that's why we have to be reminded as a church to continue to look to him so that we do continue to know that, that we are going to have an encounter with him, to, to remember that we are going to face judgment, but to also to pursue the things of God and to pers- persevere during our trials and tribulations. And so I don't know where you are as an individual. I'm going to ask ministers to come stand up here and, and um, Linnea and Wayne to come up and give a hymn of an invitation. Can't get that word out. But I'm just going to ask you to respond as you see fit. Because I just know that anytime we have an encounter with God or anytime we have an encounter with Scripture, that it demands a change. And what we believe about God is going to affect our behavior. Faith without works is what? It's dead. And so I'm just going to challenge you here this morning to respond how you see fit, whether it's at the altar, whether it's speaking with a minister, whether you you probably never put your faith and trust in Christ for your salvation. Matter of fact, your works are going to stop at your grave. Hebrews 2.3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Meaning, how are, how, what makes you think that you're going to pass up your meeting with Jesus one day if you escape what he did on the cross and his resurrection? So if it's giving your life to Christ, if it's being obedient and, and want to get baptized, you do what you feel the Lord calling you to do. So would you stand?